Good morning. Good to see you all. Hope you had a great spring break. Ron is out of town, and so we will be picking up where he left off in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. Uh, while you're turning there, I want to tell you my spring break story. I got to play golf on Friday, which I love playing golf. I'm not any good, but I like it anyways. And I played with a, a student of mine who graduated and is now in college uh, and is much better than I am and I always play better when I play with this guy. So Drew and I go and we go to Haslett. There's a golf course out there uh, that you'll see goats on eating grass. And it's, uh, it's a very cheap course, but a lot of fun to play. We get out there late Friday and it's just packed. And so uh, we walk in, they fit us in, and we have to wait behind six guys. I don't know if you've ever played golf behind six guys, but it takes a really long time. And so in between shots, they'd tee off, and it would take five, ten minutes for them to tee off, get down the get down the course and get out of the way. So Drew and I would tee off and wait. And we'd sit and we'd talk. It was great conversation, but at the same time, we felt as if we were suffering. Uh, and in our suffering, we talked after the first two holes I just bought some new clubs, and in that line of clubs, I have an approach wedge and a pitching wedge. I don't have a sand wedge. Uh, and at this course, there are a few holes that are, that are shorter, and I needed a sand wedge. I mean, I, I desperately needed a sand wedge. I'd over, overshot some, uh, some holes and needed a smaller club just because, again, my inability with what I have. And so we make it to the third hole we're playing, and I hook one back behind the green. And as I'm walking up, I've got time to look for my ball because we're waiting forever. And we were suffering playing golf on Friday. And so I'm walking up to this pond to look for my ball. Well, I didn't know there was a pond, but I get there. I was like, oh, it's a pond. My ball's gone. And so I look down, and I see a club. I don't know how many have ever played golf and looked in a pond, and when you look in for your ball, instead you find a club. And I was like, all right, this is cool. So you can't just leave a club, all right? If you're me, you can't leave a club there. So I crawl down in this hole, down to this pond, and I'm reaching with my club. And Drew drives up, and he's like, what are you doing? And I'm reaching in here, trying not to fall in. And I pull this club out, and look at sand wedge. So I had a sand wedge on the third hole, played the rest of the game. It needs a new handle, but for a $1 ball, I traded for like a $20 sand wedge that needs a new handle. That was my spring break. So, anyways, uh, suffering brought about redemption in a sand wedge. Anyways, First Peter chapter 2, as I said, Ron has been in First Peter, and before we dive into chapter 2, we're going to kind of recap 1, 2, and 3 that, that Ron finished up with last week. But before we get there, I want to go to the first verse of First Peter that says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter, we know, uh, was a fisherman. He was called by Jesus to be a disciple. He followed Jesus um, for, for three years, roughly, learning from, building theology, learning about God, learning about what God was doing uh, for man and, and in man and with the condition of man and how he would bring about redemption. And then later on, as, as uh, Peter grows and matures and Jesus does his thing and leaves and then empowers, God uses Peter to cornerstone the church uh, and to build his church. And he uses Peter and Paul both uh, very influentially, Peter, Paul, and actually John, too, but Peter, a fisherman, uh, a Jewish man brought up a Jew, follower of God, then a follower of Jesus. He, um, it, at a minimum, we've got this theology from First Peter being built from Peter. And it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter being a servant of God, Peter being a follower of God, does that through the person of Jesus Christ. And I always love to, to teach with the epistles because most of these start this way. And it's so much fun just to look at the specific claim that these men make. That the relationship with God is through Jesus. Those who built the church, uh, we have a relationship with God, we have redemption, we have correction through Jesus Christ. Not through ourself, not through success, not through whatever it is we feel is right, 
but rather it draws us into the specific point that our relationship with God comes through Jesus, Jesus Christ. So in light of that, we will now go to chapter 2. Uh, again, we're going to recap. Ron last week talked about three points uh, in maturing in your faith. And he said the three things you have to do, you've got to be nourished uh, through the word, you've got to be obedient to the word, and you have to participate in the community of God, basically, uh, or in the church. And so with that said, we'll relook at uh, verse one says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice or, or evil uh, and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind like newborn babies, uh, newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that you may uh, grow up in your salvation or uh, crave pure um, rightly ordered milk so that you may be grown up in your salvation so that you may mature in this relationship. Um, and again, Ron, Ron drew, the, uh, drew the point that that is through the spiritual milk or this rightly ordered milk comes from God's word. If we look at Second Peter, uh, you don't have to flip there. I'll just go real quick. Second Peter, uh, chapter one, verse two says, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the full knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And communicating there, grace and peace be yours in abundance through fully understanding who God is. And the way that we are able to do that is through God's word. Through God revealing himself to us through his word, we go there and learn about who God is and who man is and then how we respond to that dynamic. With that said, here in, in chapter 2, we are to crave this rightly ordered, this spiritual milk that leads us into maturity so that we might be grown up in our faith. Not only that, but it goes on to say, uh, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So one, the, the point Ron made last week that you've got to be nursed. You've got to be in the word. You've got to be learning. You have to be hearing. Not only that, going back, it says, therefore, or having rid yourself, having done this in the past, having rid yourself of evil and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind, putting off the old self. This allusion maybe to baptism in a sacrament. The idea of putting off your old self, being obedient to the word. Not only are you hearing, are you listening, are you beginning to understand more, but then you're acting and you're being obedient to that. And going on and saying, now that you've tasted of the Lord's kindness or that the Lord is kind. And another possible allusion to a sacrament of communion. And this idea of tasting. And so there's a lot happening in these first three verses on the surface, obviously, we're, we're changing, we're being different, we're putting off our old self. Not only that, we're diving into God's word here. Uh, even this uh, spiritual milk can, can be uh, connected, obviously, with Jesus. Uh, Jesus is referred to in First Peter as the word, as spiritual milk, and then we'll see in a little while as a stone. Um, and so we've got this ridding ourselves and maybe this allusion to baptism. Not only that, but here we're tasting and understanding and growing and maturing. And it's this hopeful concept. It's a full concept of being nourished in God's word, of being obedient to that, and being a part of the community of God. In what we do, in what we hear, in what we say, in how we act, in how we worship, it's an all-encompassing idea of maturity that you might grow into maturity. Just as a newborn baby will grow into adulthood and learn and be able to function and all those great things. And so in chapter uh, chapter two, verse four, now where we'll spend most of our time uh, begins and says, as you come to him or to those of you who are drawing near to the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God as precious to him, 
You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he says, to you who are drawing near to God. He's very specific again. Okay, to you guys now that are listening, those of you who are drawing near to God, to the living stone, and then he defines for us the living stone. He's referring again to Jesus and now calling him the living stone. He says he's rejected by men, but chosen by God is precious to him. It's going to unfold in a minute as this idea of a cornerstone, and we'll get into that uh, um, here in a second. But then in verse 5, he says, you also, so again, those of you who are drawing near, those of you who are back in verse 1, you've now been done with evil. You're now done with um, putting off the old self, and you're drawing near to God. You're participating, you're maturing. Recognize the fact, he says, you also, who are drawing near to God, are like living stones. You are who are drawing to the living stone, are like now the living stone. And he says, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And so again, looking back at this idea of 1, 2, and 3, verses 1, 2, and 3, and the concept of existing inside this community. Verses 1, through 2, and 3 give us this idea of our, our response, our obedience, our hearing, and our existence inside the community. Well, verse 5 then begins to unfold further and communicate this idea that not only do you exist inside the community, but you are now as believers, as followers of Jesus, you are like the physical makeup of where God has chosen to make His presence known. Your membership in the club has just heightened. It has multiplied from you're a part of, you're in the community, you're existing, you're living, you're functioning, to now you are the makeup of where God has chosen to make His presence known. This concept of understanding now who we are as Christians, as followers of of Jesus, who we truly are as, as people and as individuals and how we should live. When I went to college... I had decided, I grew up in Amarillo, and I turned 18 and, and went to DBU, which is Dallas Baptist University, also called Debu, or Dallas Baptist Church Camp, if you've never been there. It was church camp for four years. It was amazing. Uh, and then I went into student ministry, now I do church camp all the time. So I've been doing church camp the last, wow, 18 years of my life. So since I was 12, y'all don't care. It doesn't matter. Um, Regardless, so I go to college and I decide when I go. I, I live down the street from my high school growing up, literally. I live two blocks from my high school. I drove a truck, but that's because everybody drove trucks. We wore boots because that's what everybody wore. And, I mean, that was bottom line. So that's just that's who we were. So when I go to college, I decide, you know what? I'm going to go full-fledged and I'm going to be a cowboy. Because nobody knew me. I went to school with two people I knew uh, growing up. Uh, and so no one else knew me. So I was able to show up and be who I wanted to be now and be a new individual. And so I show up with the, the boots, the, the truck, the hat. Uh, I end up, I get to school, I buy a saddle, I start riding bulls, I start doing all these things that a cowboy would do. And everybody thought, literally, people thought that I grew up on a ranch. And I literally, I lived two streets down from my high school and, you know, pavement. And, I mean, we owned, I don't know how much land, not very much land. It took me an hour to mow it. And, and that was it. And so but this, uh, this whole idea that I had decided now I'm going to be a cowboy, which di- then directed my decisions. It directed the way that I acted. I carried a different persona than I, than I normally did. I'm no longer a cowboy. Uh, I've gotten out of that. That was my identity crisis phase, and now I'm just normal for me, uh, which is not normal for most, but normal for me. Um, but, it, but it directed what I did, how I talked, who I hung out with, 
how I invested my money, what it was that I watched on TV. We watched bull riding every Thursday night. We watched uh, eight seconds. I don't know how many times. I don't know if you've seen that movie or not, but I had it. And we wore that thing out. The, the videotape no longer worked. It wasn't on DVD. But that, that identity that I had claimed then directed everything I did in, in very practical ways. The same for us, understanding now who we are from Scripture, grounding ourselves in God's Word and understanding that you as followers of Jesus are the physical makeup of where God has chosen to make His presence known to the world. And Peter is writing as an encouragement to these people. Though you are suffering, or you might suffer for a little while, rejoice in that. Understanding who you are and being able to live as effective people for the kingdom of God because of who you are. It goes on in, in verse 5, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Again, this idea, what we bring to God, our sacrifices, our worship, what we do, is acceptable through the person of Jesus. Again, the author of 1 Peter is very specific. The relationship with God, our worship to God, is through Jesus, and, and that's when it's valid. Outside of Jesus Christ, it's invalid. It's worthless. And so, coming back to this idea of Jesus as a stone, in verse 6 it says, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Verse 7, now, that you, uh, now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or cornerstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So this idea now of Jesus as a stone, the author begins to make Old Testament references. And he does this throughout First Peter. Um, but he makes three different Old Testament references, and then he's going to make some allusions to some other Old Testament passages as well. But three specific quotes. The first one is from Isaiah 28:16 that says, again, See, I lay in a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. If we go back and we look at Isaiah 28, which you don't have to, I'll just recap it for you. Isaiah is speaking um, basically judgment against Ephraim. And so Ephraim has um, gone out and they've been disobedient to God. And the whole passage is about their drunkenness and how their priests and their prophets are drinking. And they're drinking in the temple and when they're supposed to be worshiping and in an unholy way. And it's just a whole mess going on. No, not only is it Ephraim, but it's also Judah. Uh, the, the kingdom is split at this time. And so God is now bringing judgment upon them and they're going to be overtaken by the Assyrians. At least the northern kingdom will be taken over by the Assyrians. And Isaiah is speaking into this. And with that, God says, see, I lay the stone in Zion. And so when they hear this, when the people hear this from first Peter, recognize the fact that they are using this community right here. If we go back and look at uh, chapter one, the uh, elect strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, those who have been chosen. Uh, the folks in that area who are a part of this church are using predominantly the Hebrew Bible as their scripture. Um, the references here from First Peter are, are closely linked to the, to the uh, Septuagint, which is the Greek translation. Um, but regardless, that's what they hold so far as scripture and then whatever circulating in terms of New Testament documents. But... The Bible's not set yet how it is that you have it. That doesn't happen until the 4th century. So, uh, anyway, so they're aware of these passages. They're aware of what's going on. And so they automatically, when this author refers to this instance, it's taking their mind back to a story. 
It's taking them back to the narrative of what God has done with his people and back to a time of judgment and disobedience and then eventually exile. And the connections of the exile, because in first Peter, he refers to uh, God's people as being exiles in the world. And so there's an automatic connection between the two right there that you're both exiles in the world. And then brings out this idea of the stone. And this idea, possibly, I studied this thing for roughly 13 hours to get a specific answer on exactly what they would be thinking about this stone, and I don't have a clear answer for you. I have a couple of options. Um, one of which is, is a possibility that God is uh, using this as a, a symbolic, as this is the tool that I'm using now to bring, in chapter 28, my nation back to me, to, to redeem, to bring them back, to bring them out of disobedience. Uh, and the other option uh, that I like a little better because it's this whole concept of God dwelling with man. Um, the stone being, this is now where the presence of God will be known. Uh, and those who will trust in him will not be put to shame. And so th- those are options. But that's what's going on. It's going to automatically draw them back to the storyline of Israel being disobedient to God and God bringing judgment upon them in exile. And he goes on and says in verse 7, Now that you believe the stone uh, is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become a capstone. That is a uh, Psalms 118.22 quote. And then in verse 8, A stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. That's Isaiah 8.14. Uh, and a very similar storyline as in 28 and a part of uh, that whole story from what we just talked about in Isaiah. But this idea now that those who don't believe, uh, the builders who rejected the stone, this concept of man building this idea of God. This is, and this is a, a, good, uh, a good one that we can move over to, to us right now in our culture, our society, and where we are at in our day and age. Spirituality is rampant, at least throughout our nation. It's throughout the world, but throughout our nation. And we see that those around us will pick and choose what they like in terms of what they're going to believe, what they believe about God, what they believe about man, about goodness and evil, and all those things. And whatever makes sense or is maybe logical or they like or they heard on TV or somebody popular said is where they align themselves. And those builders of spirituality in the 21st century in America are rejectors of Jesus. In the same way here, you've got this, this idea that those who are building are rejecting Jesus or rejecting uh, in First Peter, rejecting Jesus, the one who is uh, now called a stone. And it says they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they are destined for. Verse 9, it says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, this idea of understanding now who we are in having a relationship with Jesus. He makes uh, two allusions to Old Testament passages here. One is in Exodus 19, uh, as Moses has brought the people out. God has brought the people out of, of Egypt, and Moses is leading. They stop at Sinai, and God says to him, I'm actually going to read it because I don't remember the quote. Exodus 19, verse 5 says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So you've got an illusion there, this idea of 
being a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And then it says, for the purpose of that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. If we go back and we look at that Exodus story, God's purpose, when God goes and he gets Abram back in Genesis, and he calls Abram out of where he's at, and he says, I'm going to make you a people, and those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse, and the whole earth, all the peoples of the earth, will be blessed by you. God calls a man to build a nation to then make his people for the purpose of directing people back to God. It was, it's not the purpose, purpose to make an exclusion of everybody else outside of Israel, not to exclude all the Gentiles, but rather for the, for the Israelites, for the Jewish people, to show who the true God was and to bring those people to repentance and to redemption and to correction through God. Again, that, that whole idea transfers now to, to those who are followers of Jesus, that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, Belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. Our purpose is the same as theirs living in our world is to declare the praises of God and to direct people back to God. For the purpose of redemption, to be corrected for our brokenness. In verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you were, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Another allusion to Hosea. Uh, and what's going on there. I won't get into that story because um, we don't have time. But in verse 11, he continues, says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. And so he continues again with this idea, this full concept of being in exile is now at the forefront during this discussion. They have the picture of going back to, to exile for uh, the northern kingdom. He's referred to them as alien strangers, exiles in the world. And he calls them to abstain from sinful desires. He, he calls them to continue to live out putting off their old self that we talked about in verse 1. For the purpose of when those around them attempt to accuse them of being as wrongdoers, are not able to find fault, which then directs them to God. May your good works direct people back to God. If we go, we've been going through uh, the book of Daniel in our 11 o'clock class uh, in our student ministry. And uh, Daniel is living during the time of the exiles. And uh, if you look at Daniel chapter 6, which is uh, probably the most popular story from Daniel, it's Daniel in the lion's den, um, which interestingly enough, uh, Daniel, as, as we've gone through this and looked at storylines, I've looked through it just through Babylonian history and uh, timelines and everything that's happening. In Daniel, in chapter 6, this is just for uh, your side note that you can write down and, uh, and know fun facts. Daniel is a minimum of 86 when he makes it to the lion's den. Uh, most of us growing up, if you grew up in church, you would see the uh, little felt boards and we put the pictures on the felt boards and the lions and Daniel. And Daniel looks like maybe 17. The dude is not 17. He is old by the time he hits the lion's den. So, which I would argue takes a little bit away from his um, uh, his bravery in this whole situation. Because if you're 86, um, let's just say you're 86 now and death is, is near, uh, you know, you're not going to make it a whole lot longer. You may make it to 100, maybe a little further, but there's just a, not a lot left. You've lived most of your life. 
Me, if I were 86 and being thrown in the lion's den, I wouldn't mind being eaten. Because then in eternity, when you walk up to somebody and they're like, dude, how'd you go? Uh, you know, I died in my sleep. I just got old and whatever. How'd you go? I got eaten by a lion. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, talk about manly. The only manlier thing than being eaten by a lion is killing the lion and then eating it yourself. And so, but regardless, so he's 86. He's made it through. Daniel's amazing because the narrative of Daniel, Daniel makes it through nine king transitions, one regent, and one complete empire shift in the royal court. Going from age 12 to possibly in his 90s. And just the blessing and the grace of God upon this man throughout this whole thing. But in Daniel 6, we look and Darius has made 120 satraps to rule over the kingdom. And he's made three people to be administers. And of those administers, Daniel stands out. And so he's now taken Daniel and he's going to make him second in charge of the kingdom. Which is very typical throughout the narrative of Daniel. Each one of the stories, as we see, Daniel is promoted, except for the stories he's not in. Uh, but Daniel's promoted. We see God's favor. We see God's grace. And God um, like I said, gives him favor and he's promoted and, and does well in exile. But Daniel's made, uh, or is at least planned to be made, second in charge. And those around him become jealous and bring charge, and try to find charges to bring against this man to undermine him. You've got Daniel living in exile at this point now in a, in a Persian kingdom. It was Babylonian and taken over by the Persians. And so he's living still in exile in somebody else's court. And those around him become jealous and they try to undermine him. And they can't find anything wrong with the guy. You've got Daniel who's been in politics for the better part of 70 years. And they can't find anything wrong with him. If we were so lucky today, that would be cool. Um, I, I don't watch politics. I don't follow it enough to be able to make harsh, funny comments. And so I won't make any more than what I just made. Because that one wasn't funny, obviously. Nobody laughed. Cool. I was laughing inside. And Steve, actually, Steve is our assistant student pastor. He laughs at everything I say, whether it's funny or not. So I know he was laughing on the inside and smiling. He tells bad jokes, though. So he he was doing a sermon one time in school and he, he got to got to the office like man I got a great start to this sermon I'm gonna tell you this joke and so he tells me this joke about uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer killing thousands of people but yet they died because they high fived each other to death or something that, the thing didn't even make sense and I was like Steve please don't do this do not use this don't use it okay and so I'm, I was worried I'm praying for Steve God please give Steve wisdom not to use this joke and he gets back he's like I used the joke it was awesome. Can't believe you did. So we're running out of time. I'm so sorry. Um, where was I? At? So Daniel. Daniel is living in exile, but he lives in such a way that they can't find anything wrong with him, and so they have to go and attack his relationship with God and his piety and how he practices worship with God, and that's what they attack in order to throw him in the lion's den. And long story short, he gets thrown in the den. He doesn't get eaten, and the king's response when Darius shows up. Darius shows up and he pulls him out. And in verse 26 of chapter 6 of Daniel, says, I issue a decree that every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs, performs signs and wonders in heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. 
And so here you have a story of a man living in exile who's a follower of God, who endures suffering, but lives in such a way. When God saves him, his relationship with God and what God has done brings about this this king verbally recognizes who God is, makes a verbal recognition of the power of Yahweh and of his kingdom and of his dominion and its everlastingness. Daniel, in the midst of exile, in the midst of suffering, in, in terms of being in exile, lives in such a way that God uses him to direct people back to God. And the whole concept from First Peter is understanding that, that we are now in Christ in a relationship with God, the physical makeup of where God has decided now to make His presence known to the world. I'm going to end with um, a traditional prayer used in the, in the Eucharist, um, ancient traditional uh, reading. It says, Here we offer ourselves in obedience to You through the perfect offering of Your Son, Jesus Christ, giving You thanks that You have called us to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, your own people, and to you, O God, creator and sustainer of life, redeemer and sanctifier of man, be ascribed blessing, honor, glory, power, forever and ever. Amen. May we live in such a way that we bring honor to God, but God uses us to direct people back to Him. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for another chance to come to worship you. Uh, to read from your word in the study. Thank you for um, the forgiveness that we find in you uh, and the redemption that we have, the correcting, uh, the bringing us back to you. And thank you for uh, the sacrifice that you've made. Thank you for the strength, uh, peace, and hope that you give us in times of suffering uh, and what we were able to learn from, to grow from, to mature. Pray for opportunities this week uh, for each one of us to love people, uh, to share you with them, to reach out to our neighbors. We pray that you will uh, be in the midst of those situations. Uh, give us wisdom, strength, uh, and direction in those times. Again, we thank you for your love and your forgiveness. Amen.